invite you now to take out your Bibles and turn to John chapter 4. John 4, starting in verse 24. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ. And when he comes, he will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. Just then his disciples came back. They marveled that he was talking with a woman, but no one said, what do you seek? Or why are you talking with her? So the woman left her water jar and went away into town and said to the people, Come, see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? They went out of the town and were coming to him. Meanwhile, the disciples were urging him, saying, Rabbi, eat. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you do not know about. So the disciples said to one another, Has anyone brought him something to eat? Jesus said to them, My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Ascends the reading of God's holy and inspired word. Please be seated. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we thank you for this morning. We thank you for drawing us together as your people. Thank you that we can come and gather in the name of Christ. Lord, we pray now that as we open your word, that you would use it to accomplish the purpose for which you sent it. Lord, may we see these truths for what they are, the word of God, not the word of man. Father, I pray that you would superintend all that is said here. Lord, may it be your truth that is spoken in nothing but. Lord, we pray that you would uh, move in our hearts and minds, that we would receive what it is you have for us today. And we pray that we would be shaped through it. Lord, may your spirit be present to open up our eyes, ears, hearts, and minds, and may you be glorified in the proclamation of your word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So we pick up again with our series in John, and we continue to look at the exchange between Jesus and the woman of Samaria. Now to recap, we've seen with each turn in the conversation, Jesus has been peeling back the layers, trying to get down to the roots of the woman's need. Right, pushing back past her emphasis upon tradition and place, uh, her focus on the externals of worship, and looking instead at the heart. Now Jesus had supernatural knowledge of the woman's messy past and her current life of sin, and she could tell from this that Jesus was a prophet. And as we'll see today, she started to see perhaps more than a prophet. So let's pick back up with verse 24. Jesus said to her, God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. Now, we spent last week unpacking what it means to worship in spirit and in truth, uh, but I realized that we skipped that phrase there, God is spirit. So what is Jesus saying in this? God is spirit tells us a good deal about God. Firstly, saying God is spirit tells us that God does not have limitations like we do. To paraphrase D.A. Carson, spirit characterizes what God is like in the same way that flesh, location, and the fact that we have 
physical bodies characterizes human beings. And so God is not like us in these ways. We've just seen in the preceding context, Jesus' discussion with Nicodemus, the Holy Spirit was said to be like the wind. You can see the effects, but you cannot control or comprehend the wind. And there may be a similar implication here. God being spirit would be beyond our ability to comprehend or know unless he chose to reveal himself to us. And the fact is, in his grace, he has done exactly that. He has revealed himself to us in his word and supremely in his son. And he has granted us his Holy Spirit. And so our worship done in true knowledge of God, a knowledge of what he requires, given from the heart, from our spirit, empowered by his spirit, and offered through Christ, our great high priest and mediator, is how we may worship the God who is spirit, in spirit and truth. Verse 25. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ, and when he comes, he will tell us all things. Now, while their understanding, the Samaritan understanding, was hindered by the fact that they only accepted the first five books of the Old Testament, sometimes called the Torah or the Pentateuch, the Samaritans clearly still had some concept of a coming Messiah. Their understanding was likely shaped by passages such as Deuteronomy 18, verse 5, or verse 15, where Moses prophesied the coming of another prophet like him. And so the woman said, pardon me, or perhaps passages like Genesis 49.10, where Israel, Jacob, prophesied the coming of a ruler from the line of Judah, to whom would be the obedience of the peoples. So the woman said, when the Messiah comes, he will teach us all things. He will tell us all things. D.A. Carson writes, The Samaritan woman rightly insists that the Messiah, when he came, would make such matters plain. She may well have begun to suspect the truth, voicing her confession of faith as a kind of test to see what Jesus would say. And he needed no further invitation. Verse 25, Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. The one who sat by the well asking for water, weary in his humanity, though he was, was nevertheless the Messiah of God, the anointed one, par excellence, prophet, priest, and king. He is the one who came to teach the will of the Father as the prophet like Moses. He teaches us and he demonstrates through his own life what the Father is truly like. He is the one who would fulfill all that the temple worship was pointing toward, the once-for-all sacrifice of Christ, who is our great and eternal high priest, who entered into the true most holy place in heaven to secure an eternal redemption for his people and whoever lives to intercede for them. He is the promised descendant of David, the one who would receive an everlasting kingdom, the ruler from the line of Judah to whom would be the obedience of the peoples. He is the Messiah. 
He offers living water, which will well up, spring up to eternal life. I who speak to you am he. Verse 27. Just then his disciples came back. They marveled that he was talking with a woman, but no one said, what do you seek? Or why are you talking with her? You may remember the disciples had gone into town to buy food and having completed their task, return to Jesus and find him speaking to the woman, and they are just as surprised as she was to find Jesus talking to her. Now, some traditions among the Jews of this day, though certainly not all would have held this view, uh, said that for a rabbi to talk much with a woman, even his own wife, quote, was at best a waste of time and at worst a diversion from the study of God's law, an evil so great that it could lead to a man inheriting Gehenna, hell. Similarly, expressing at least one stream of thought in his day, first century rabbi Eliezer ben Hyrcanus is cited as saying that the words of the Torah should be burned rather than entrusted to a woman. Jesus shows by his example, Jesus shows by his example exactly what he thought of these unbiblical man-made traditions. And so his disciples, at least this time, do the wise thing and hold their peace instead of saying what they were thinking. To the extent that they had been influenced by the social conventions and unbiblical traditions of their day, the disciples needed to be corrected by their Lord. And on this particular issue, they would see their Lord continue to speak with, associate with, and teach women. Think of the story of Mary and Martha. Mary sitting at Jesus' feet, learning from him. Jesus did not think that was a waste. Mary, in fact, is commended by Jesus. She is set forth as the example in that story, the one who should be followed. And so all of us, men and women, must be taught by Christ. Women, my sisters, my mothers in the faith, do not think that because you will not be called to preach that there is no need for you to learn Scripture. But for the sake of your own souls, your walk with God, you must be in the Word. For the sake of your children, whom you will have a major role in teaching and discipling, you must be in the word. For the sake of your church family, whom you have the duty to encourage and to build up as you can, you must be in the word. And for the sake of your husbands, you must be in the word. Do you desire to be a blessing to your husband? Pursue the Lord. Spend time in the word. The fact is, the closer you are to Christ, the better wife, mother, church member, daughter, and friend you will be. Let's continue on. Verse 28. So the woman left her water jar and went away into town and said to the people, Come see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? They went out of the town and were coming to him. The Samaritan woman already at this point appears to have been radically changed 
by her encounter with Jesus. Now, especially if we are correct in our understanding of why she was out there drawing water in the middle of the day, you may remember the sixth hour and what we call noon would not be the typical time of day to come to the well in the hot sun and do your heavy lifting, right? Why do this work in the heat of the day when cooler hours are available for the task? And so given what we learn of her history, it seems somewhat likely that she wanted to be alone. The pain of her past marriages having ended under whatever circumstances, we don't know, or perhaps the shame of her current life, living in sin. Remember, living with a man who was not her husband. This may very well have been that she wanted to be alone, rather facing the heat of the day than face the shame of being around the other townspeople. And so see now the radical contrast in her. Jesus had offered her living water that would well up to eternal life. He had peeled back the layers with each turn in the conversation, showing her the true nature of her spiritual thirst. He has displayed supernatural knowledge. He has spoken authoritatively of matters of worship, and she is now believing his claim that he is the Christ, the Messiah. And so where she had formerly been going out of her way to avoid the townspeople, we now see her seeking them out. Right, going to them. Now, although it's not fully drawn out in this story, it is nevertheless a beautiful picture of how Christ transforms lives. Like the Samaritan woman, we are all sinners. And because we are made in the image of God, try as we might, we cannot shake the shame that we feel for our sin. We know in our heart of hearts that what we're doing or what we've done is wrong. Or perhaps we feel the weight of guilt for past sin. And everything we've tried on our own to atone for this, everything we've tried to self-medicate, to cause us to forget, it all fails. Or maybe we've tried embracing our sin. Perhaps we've surrounded ourselves with people who tell us to celebrate it. This is just who we are. We don't need to change. We don't need to apologize. This is just who I am. And yet all the messages of self-love, self-care, self-esteem, self-whatever end up ringing hollow at the end of the day. And though we've suppressed the knowledge we are still left with our shame, our guilt, and our burden. The fact is, there is only one solution to our guilt and our shame. Jesus Christ died a shameful death upon a cross. He took the full weight of the guilt of our sin. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, He became sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. He, the theme of heaven's praises, humbled himself from his position of exaltation 
in order to bear the shame, the guilt of the sin of his people. The declaration from Scripture is that there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. There is freedom, for we have been declared righteous through Christ. God is the one who justifies, who is to condemn. Through Christ, we are free. Free from the weight of our shame and our guilt, for he has taken it upon himself. And so, brothers and sisters, if you are in Christ, know this. You are not the sum total of your past sins. Whatever you have done, that does not identify you anymore. If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. And so we may now live in freedom. Live in the freedom and lightheartedness that can only come from a clean conscience and the knowledge that we are righteous through the work of another. The story that we may have thought was being told by our lives has now changed. If you come to Christ, know this. The story of your life is not a tragedy. It is not a tragedy. For those who find Christ, their life becomes a story of redemption. Consider the trajectory of the life of the Samaritan woman. Her life was changed. Her trajectory was forever altered through her encounter with Jesus. Right? She had been married five times, whether that was through death or adultery that her marriages ended. It was a tragic life. She was living in sin. And so her life looking like a life of tragedy and sin on a course for damnation became instead a beautiful story of redemption. I don't think it's a stretch to imagine that this woman is now known in heaven to the saints. She will be known for eternity not as the woman who was married five times and living in sin with the sixth man. Rather, she will be honored for all time as the first Christian convert among the Samaritans. She will be honored as the one whose story was used by God for the conversion of perhaps millions more through church history. She will be known as a cleansed and forgiven sinner through whom God was pleased to glorify himself for his grace. And so it will be for all who come to Christ. We find in him a perfect Savior, perfect cleansing, perfect forgiveness. Our debts have been paid in full. Our shame has been exchanged for glory. And the freedom found in forgiveness and eternal life. And so we too are transformed by Christ and enabled, like the Samaritan woman, to go and not only face those we were once ashamed to appear before, but to proclaim to them the good news that we have found the Savior. And we'll come back to that. Let's continue on, verse 31. Meanwhile, the disciples were urging him, saying, 
Rabbi, eat. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you do not know about. So the disciples said to one another, Has anyone brought him something to eat? Remember the reason Jesus had been alone at the well was because the disciples had gone into town to buy food. Uh, They now returned and they urged Jesus to eat some of the food they have brought. And Jesus says to them that he has food that they know nothing about. The disciples took his words literally and began asking each other, like, who brought Jesus food? Where, where did he find food from? Was ice cream truck come by? Uh, where did he get this food from? And Jesus explained that he wasn't talking about physical food, but said, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. There is greater sustenance and satisfaction to be found in doing the will of God than in any of the food that the disciples could offer him. Now, while Jesus was fully human and therefore did get hungry and needed to eat, Jesus took this situation as a chance to teach something to his disciples. The joy of doing his father's work of pleasing his father, of knowing that he was doing truly meaningful work was satisfying and nourishing to the soul. So what was the work that Christ had been sent to accomplish? Luke 19 verse 10, the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. John three seventeen, he came that the world might be saved through him. Jesus came to seek and to save lost sinners like the Samaritan woman. And doing that work was satisfying to him. It energized him, brought encouragement and strength. It was like food to the soul. And here we see a beautiful glimpse into our Savior's heart. Seeking and saving the lost brings joy to Christ. In Luke 15, verse 10, Jesus said, There is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Now think on this, if the angels are rejoicing, how much more must the salvation of his people bring joy to our Savior's heart? Christian, you whom Christ sought out, Though you were a sinner like the Samaritan woman, you who are in Christ, you are part of the reward that Christ was after in his sufferings. Hebrews 12 verse 2 says that it was for the joy that was set before him that Christ endured the cross. So catch this. Your salvation brings joy to your Savior's heart. You, Christian, my brother or sister in Christ, Jesus had your salvation in mind when he endured the cross, and that thought brought him joy. To see the salvation of the lost brought him joy, kept him going. It was his food to do the will of the Father to come and to redeem those whom the Father had given to him. 
Doing this work, he says, was satisfying to the heart as food is to the body. And so what is it that keeps you going? What is it that sustains you to press through your daily grind? What food do you have for your soul as you carry on day in and day out? Now, I believe many people live very unfulfilled lives because they don't know what they are for. Why am I doing this? I go to work so I can buy food, so I can eat, so I can stay alive, so I can go to work again. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. What does a man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? Ecclesiastes 1, 2, and 3. Many people assume that leisure is the point. They know the song, everybody's working for the weekend. Perhaps their biggest goal in life is early retirement. Right. I just see myself sipping margaritas on the beach somewhere. It's been well said, that's not a plan, that's a travel poster. Many people live for their hobbies, for early retirement, or for their vacations, and as a result, they find their lives to be very unfulfilling because they don't know what they are for. Many women struggle in their home life, right? The daily grind of dishwashing, laundry folding, nose wiping, and diaper changing goes on and on and on. The sun rises and the sun goes down and it hastens to the place where it rises. What has been is what will be and what has been done is what will be done. And there is nothing new under the sun. Ecclesiastes 1, 5, and 9. And so here's the problem, and that is we don't know what we are for. We don't know what, what, what our homes are for. And so we wander about unfulfilled. When our work is disconnected from our mission, from our reason for living, we will very likely struggle with this. Now you may have heard the story of the traveling merchant who one day was coming into a new town and he heard the, the sound of tools and the groans of men and animals hard at work. And he followed the sound and he came to a construction site with great stacks of large stones piled all around. Now curious about the project, the merchant approached three men who were cutting stones to ask them what they were building. Now he came to the stone cutter and asked him, hello sir, may I be so bold as to inquire what you are up to? Stone cutter, with slumped shoulders and dull eyes, responded gruffly, what am I up to? I'm cutting stones. That's all there is to it. Now the merchant didn't find that to be very helpful. And so he approached the second stone cutter and asked him, friend, may I ask what you're doing here? The second stone cutter replied, what am I doing? I'm working. I'm earning money. Once I get enough money, I'm traveling back home. Still not having found his answer, he approached the third stone cutter. This one, looking very much unlike the first two, was surrounded by stacks of the most beautifully cut stones that he had ever seen. And this man seemed to be enjoying his work immensely. He asked, sir, what is it that you are building? Third, the third stone cutter dusted off his hands, 
his chest rising with pride and smiling, he said, Sir, I am building a great cathedral to the glory of Almighty God. Now, our work may seem meaningless when we are missing the bigger picture. Perhaps we have only a vague and distant concept of how our daily tasks, right, our chipping away at these stones is connecting to the ultimate goal. And so we would do well to adopt the old quarry worker's slogan, those who cut stones must envision cathedrals. We must aim to connect every part of our lives to the purpose that God has for us. In so doing, what we will find is that we too have food that others may know nothing of. For our food will then be to do the will of our Father who is in heaven. Now the fact is, if you want to know the purpose of a thing, there is no one better to ask than its maker. And so with us, if you were to ask, what are we for? What is the purpose of my life? Why am I here? What, why do I work? What's the purpose of my home? Why do we exist? Or another way to say it, what is the chief end of man? Answer, man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away and the new has come. When we come to Christ, we are made into new creatures. Christ is our Lord. Christ is our head. And he is Lord of every area of life. One of the beautiful implications of this reality is that this fact brings meaning into every area of life. Romans 12.1 Offer your bodies as a living sacrifice holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. And so truly, everything we do can and should be done as an act of worship unto the Lord. So here is hope for the person who feels like they are stuck at the bottom of the totem pole, stuck with what they think of as the most mundane, meaningless tasks, in everything you do, you can glorify God. You can worship God. You may please the Lord. Paul's instructions here even to bond servants to slaves says, Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. And the more that you grow in love for God, the weightier this will be for you. Christ Jesus loved his Father supremely, and so for him to do his Father's will sustained him. Right? Because of his love for God, to do the will of the Father was food to the soul. And so for us, as we become more like Christ, as we grow to love what he loves, then for us as well, to simply know that we are doing the will of our Father, this will be food to us. 
So seek to bring every part of your life into alignment with this vision, with this mission. Ask yourself, how may I live in such a way that I would glorify my Father in heaven? What is my home for? What is my job for? How may I work and act and build and serve in such a way that glorifies the Lord? Develop a mission for your home. Work to see how what you do there fits into the broader goal of glorifying God. Now for us, our home is for hospitality and discipleship. Our hope is that we would use what we have to glorify God by building his kingdom through teaching, encouraging, serving, fellowshipping with, and admonishing his saints. <clears throat> and of course, our home is also a training ground. As the Lord blesses us with children, our goal is to raise them up in the discipline and admonition of the Lord. Our goal is that we would raise children who would be sharpened arrows in the hands of a warrior, Psalm 127. That they would hit the target when they are fired out into the world. That they would live as kingdom citizens, true blessings to their church and to their community. That they would be godly and good neighbors, honest and hard workers. That they would be disciple makers, shining the light of the gospel into a world lost in darkness. Our hope is that they too would have children and do the same, raise them in the discipline and admonition of the Lord. Our hope is that generations would go by. We would see multi-generational faithfulness. The kingdom of God would grow and that it would bless all that it touches. Stone cutters must envision cathedrals. Every diaper changed, every dish that is washed, every meal prepared, every toy put away, every rear end that is spanked, every lesson prepared, every difficult evening of family worship is a necessary swing of the hammer shaping the rocks that will build the cathedral. We are not just cutting stones. We are building a cathedral. We are glorifying our Father in heaven. And to do his will is food to our souls. <laughs> to change the metaphor, everybody participating on the battleship is fighting the war. From the captain to the torpedo man to the galley chef, every part is necessary. And so in whatever you're doing, do it with all your heart as unto the Lord and not to men. And labor to see how it fits into the big picture. When viewed and done rightly, any work can be kingdom work. Any lawful work can and should be done to the glory of God. See the lordship of Christ over every part of your life and work in a way that honors him. Think of the ways that your work can, can be a blessing. Provide for your family. Give to your church community. Help us build a literal cathedral to worship in. Adorn your doctrine with godly work ethic, free of grumbling and complaining. Instead, let it be marked by thankfulness and faithfulness and dependability. Let your speech in your workplace give grace to those who hear. 
and always be ready for opportunities to proclaim the good news to all who will hear. Like the Samaritan woman, when we are changed through encountering Christ, this becomes something that we cannot and must not keep to ourselves. We who have been transformed by Christ, who have been set free from our bondage to sin, guilt, and shame, now out of love for God and our neighbors, must desire to help others find what we have found. Like the Samaritan woman, we too must testify to what we have seen, heard, and experienced. Now the woman's testimony was actually very simple. Come and see a man who told me all that I ever did. We too, if we are born again, have also been shown our need by Christ. He has shown us what we did. Before we could receive the good news of the gospel, we had to first come to terms with the bad news. We have sinned against a holy God. And there is nothing we can do to save ourselves. We have been shown our need for a Savior. But how much more do we know than what this woman yet did? And yet we see her, full of enthusiasm, went and proclaimed the good news and shared the knowledge that she had with all the townspeople. And so how much greater ought our zeal to be? We who have the fullness of the gospel, we who have the benefit of the whole revelation of God, we who know Jesus not only as the one who has revealed our sinfulness to us, but who has now accomplished our redemption. Dying on the cross for our sins. Taking the full wrath of God that we deserved. Rising to life again. Ascending to the right hand of the Father where he sent the Spirit to apply the benefits he had purchased for us. Honored though this Samaritan woman will be, will undoubtedly be in the presence of the saints, at this moment, we are in a better position than she was at that moment. For we have seen the fullness of redemption. We know the whole story. We have the Spirit of God. And so we have even greater reason to be filled with zeal and passion for evangelism. And so if we are to live a life that glorifies God in all that we do, if we would be worshipers in every part of our being, every area of our lives, then part of what this must involve is a passion to see others come to know the Lord. So brothers and sisters, let us labor to become an evangelistically minded church. Take advantage of the opportunities to speak of spiritual things that present themselves to you. Pray that the Lord would providentially arrange opportunities for you to proclaim the gospel, to have meaningful conversations. Pray that he would bring people into your life in whom you can either plant new seeds or water the seeds that have already been planted. Invite people to church where they will hear the gospel and meet godly men and women. Again, the worship of the church is not primarily an evangelistic event, but God has historically used the worship of the church and especially the preaching of the word to convert many, many souls down through the centuries.
a life of holistic worship to God, a heart that is filled with love and gratitude to the Lord Jesus Christ, is one that will overflow with a desire to see others come to know the Lord. Live out the gospel and labor to apply the claims of the Lordship of Christ in every area of your life. Worship and serve and let it be your food to do the will of your Father who is in heaven. Amen.